people back then thought it was crazy that I was paying for these dinners at the time. But to me, the way I rationalized it was that the bank could take my car, they could take whatever measly assets I had left, but they couldn't take my relationships. Investing in my relationships to me were the safest investment I could make because I was pretty sure I was going to declare bankruptcy. I was as close to rock bottom as you can imagine. Welcome to Elevate, a podcast about achievement, personal growth, and pushing limits in leadership and life. I'm Robert Glazer, and I chat with world-class performers who have committed to elevating their own life, pushing the limits of their capacity, and helping others to do the same. Welcome to Elevate. The quote for today is attributed to Confucius, and that is, if you are the smartest person in the room, then you are in the wrong room. (laughs) (laughs) The premise is the cornerstone of an invite-only event for entrepreneurs called Mastermind Talk that our guest, Jason Gaynard, began building in 2013 and has developed into one of the most exclusive groups and events in the world. He's also the author of Mastermind Dinners, and we're very excited to have him here today. So welcome, Jason. It's an honor to have you join us on the Elevate podcast today. Well, thank you. Now I know who to attribute that quote to because I've been saying it for years and I've uh, I've been taking credit, but now I know it's Confucius, so... Well, I saw someone speak and he told me the first time, and I don't even remember who it was, but I guess I, I can now say I, I said this, but the first time he's, he says something, he attributes to someone. The second time, there's no attribution. The third time, it's his. So yeah. that was sort of his, <laughs> his rule of three. Let's take us back a little bit. Let's go rewind. And you know, you started your entrepreneurial journey with a personal errands business. I'd love to yeah. hear about how you got into that in the first place and, and sort of what got you started on the entrepreneurial journey. Yeah. So for me, uh, I was never much of an academic. So I, uh, I dropped out of high school, not knowing what I was going to do. But at, at the time, I was working kind of full time throughout high school and I was uh, making a lot of money that way. So I'm like, well, just not being that uh, driven on formal education. I, I pivoted out of high school, I guess you could say, into the full time workforce. And then uh, I actually got a job, oddly enough, in car sales. And um, I did that for about a month. And surprisingly, I did really, really well in that month that I was there. Uh, but when people were coming in to buy a car, I had one specific individual who was an entrepreneur uh, who took two days off of work or two days out of the office to buy a car. And he, he knew the year, make, model, color, everything, but he just wanted the best price. And in the back of my head, my I guess my entrepreneurial gears start to spin. And I'm like, well, you could start a business where you could do car shopping on people's behalf. You could probably secure a better deal uh, based on relationships and you save them all this time. So uh, I started a business geared towards doing exactly that, shopping for cars for people, I guess you could say. But like most entrepreneurs, I want to be everything to everyone. So pivoted into a personal concierge business, which was a a very um, new industry, I guess you could say at the time. And basically, our slogan was, if it was legal, moral, and would save you time, we take care of it. So I did everything from buying cars on people's behalf to watering their trees to breaking up with their girlfriends. Yeah, I mean, anything for, for $60 an hour back then. And uh, when people thought of the word concierge, they thought of a hotel concierge. And when they thought of a hotel concierge, oftentimes they thought of concert tickets. So inevitably, people started to come to us for sporting event tickets and concert tickets. So uh, we started sourcing out tickets from major brokers and that kind of stuff. And I was always almost disgusted with the the markup um, that our clients were paying because we just charged like a flat like 
$25 fee. So um, we decided to stock our own little inventory to save our clients money. And inevitably, they just kept on coming back and coming back. And that side of the business started to eclipse the service-based side, which was, generally speaking, a difficult... I mean, service-based businesses are a little more trickier to scale, I guess you could say, than uh, a product business. So uh, we pivoted into that uh, online product business, and we grew that to... It was about $7 million a year over four years with no outside investments. And um, yeah, I was I was living the life, uh, <laughs> I guess you could say. I was traveling the world, making a ton of money. But unfortunately, with all that money and all that free time, I started to ask myself questions like, why am I here? Will I be remembered? How many people will show up to my funeral? And I was not happy with the answers I was giving myself. And I realized ultimately that after being an entrepreneur for seven years, I, I built a business I hated to enable me to buy things I didn't need to impress people I didn't like. So I felt like I was stuck on this hamster wheel of sorts and I couldn't get off and became comfortable with the idea of scaling that business down to zero and having money left in the bank, uh, you know, a year down the road, let's say, so I could start something new. And inevitably, though, when I realized my heart wasn't in it, I started to pull away from the business. And unfortunately, scaling a team of A players wasn't necessarily in my skill set at the time. So I had some B players in the business who had C players uh, under them. So the business really kind of cannibalized from the inside out, but I just wanted out of the business. Even though I could have positioned it for sale, I just couldn't I couldn't stay in the business for a transition period or or that kind of stuff. I just wanted to get out. And while we were scaling down to zero, unfortunately two things happened that were beyond my control that when the dust settled in August of 2012, uh, I was a quarter million dollars in debt. So I was bankrupt on every level, like emotionally, spiritually, financially, physically. I, I built my business at the expense of my health up until that time. So I was probably 60 pounds heavier than I am now. And that was, quote unquote, my uh, my rock bottom that August of 2012. Oddly enough, September 1st, so the following month, my daughter turned six months old and I was having a hard time adjusting to being a father. And September 1st, I got married to my wife. So there's a saying that when one door closes, another one opens, but it sucks to be stuck in the hallway. That was a very dark hallway for me at the time. So I'm curious, when you were on the the top of that cycle and it was going well, what caused you, was it stress? What caused you to ask the questions when it was going great? A lot of times people are on the down cycle and then they question whether, you know, that's sort of when they're like, look, I don't love this enough to want to do it because it's not even going well. But it sounds like you were kind of sure. on the top of the roller coaster and started to ask some some deeper questions of yourself. So was it not as fun as it looked on the outside, on the inside, or what, what caused that? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a handful of things. I mean, uh, from a I guess a personality profile assessment, I'm very much a quick start um, as an entrepreneur. So I am great at getting businesses off the ground, uh, and I've realized this now looking back on being an entrepreneur for the last 14 years is that inevitably I get these businesses off the ground and I hit that kind of mid seven figure mark, and I start to get frustrated. And then I, it's easy, It's almost easier for me in my head to close that business down and start a new one um, instead of actually breaking through that that point and scaling. Um, so that's a skill set now that I know I don't have and it's not necessarily part of my personality. So I have to offset that with the right people. So it was a little bit of immaturity in, in that kind of domain. Also, it was one of those things, my, my focus at the time, if you ask me like what my marker for success was, it was really to make as much money as possible given the limited kind of right. skill set that I had, I guess you could say, because that was, uh, I, I wasn't raised in a family that had an abundance of, of money. And I saw how big money played as a role in the family and family decisions and stress on the family and all that kind of stuff. So um, 
I thought that was, you know, the key to happiness, so to speak. Uh, I remember once uh, my first mentor um, that I had, I was kind of struggling. I was doing maybe like five, $6,000 a month as far as a business was concerned at the time. And I think it was 18 or 19. So I had my first mentor and we sat down for dinner and he's like, imagine a time when your business does $80,000 a month. And intellectually, I'm like, yeah, sure. I see it. Emotionally, I'm like, that's never going to happen. Um, I'm like, I don't, I can never see myself growing a business to $80,000 a month. Uh, lo and behold, about three years later, we had our first $900,000 a month. And I remember looking back and saying to myself, like three years ago, I couldn't imagine doing $80,000 a month. Now I'm doing, you know, 11 times that. And it was just one of those things I realized that money and happiness kind of scale very differently. And, uh, I had this goal to achieve financial success. I got to the top of that mountain, so to speak, and I kind of realized I climbed the wrong the wrong mountain. <laughs> I pursued a, <laughs> a career path that wasn't uh, all that fulfilling. I was in an industry I didn't like. Like so, we were in the the business of selling and reselling concert tickets and sporting event tickets. You know, and we I, I hated going to concerts, and I saw no value in going to sporting events. So <laughs> uh, it's it's hard to get behind of like you know something when. Yeah, and sell something to somebody like we had a client who bought like eleven thousand dollar Madonna tickets, and you know I'm so, I'm making these sales, and I'm like I don't know how you're spending this kind of money on these stupid shows. So uh, there was just misalignment, you know, the wrong goals, all that kind of stuff, and uh, ultimately, actually, I think what the the nail in the coffin was was I was driving my car one day. And I got to a set of lights. I had no music going on in the car or anything like that. And I remember looking at the rearview mirror and kind of looking at myself in the face. And I remember hearing this voice saying, your dad never said he was proud of you. And I remember oh. breaking into tears, just bawling. And I was like, where is this coming from? Because I didn't have a bad relationship with my father. But I realized that to me, one of the core drivers for me trying to be so financially successful was to get that, that acknowledgement from my father one day. And when I realized that was that was driving me, I almost, you know, there was definitely some self-sabotage that was probably involved as well. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hey, Elevate listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. <coughs> Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers, with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify enabled sites is that they already know who I am and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info. The ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. 
Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com elevate. You know, you've talked about before you hit that rock bottom, sort of in that phase, you attended Tim Ferriss's opening the kimono event and you met Tim sure, and you yeah. met a lot of other, others who've gone on to influence success of, of Mastermind Talks. Can you talk a little bit about what led to that event and what did you take away from it that it was so impactful? Tim decided to do this one-off event called Opening the Kimono, which was an event geared towards authors who want to become New York Times bestselling authors. So his goal was to basically share his playbooks on how he did it, so to speak. And it was yeah. $10,000 to go for two days. And at the time, I had never had the intention of writing a book, never had the intention of obviously being any kind of New York Times bestselling author of any sorts. But at $10,000, I'm like, there's probably going to be some really interesting people there. Um, so I decided to apply and I got in and um, I yeah paid the admission and ended up going to the event. And leading up to the event, friends of mine thought I was crazy because they're like, you're never going to see the, the ROI from it. And I said, you know, potentially you're right. And after the event was done, I met some really interesting people there. But from an ROI perspective, it didn't translate right into my business right away. However, the funny thing is, is that like I, that event really shifted, I guess, how I view the, the, the importance of being surrounded by just incredible individuals. And um, the beautiful thing about that, that specific event is, yes, after the event was done, I didn't get that $10,000 ROI. But two, three years later, when I started Mastermind Talks, which was not a business idea I had on my radar by any stretch, I had five speakers speak at the event for free that I would have had to pay their speaker fees for otherwise. I had two or three people that I met at that uh, Tim Ferriss event three years prior come to Mastermind Talks. And I had two of those, sorry, five people. And then I had two of those people sign up for my $25,000 a year retreat program. So if you look at the ROI, just on that $10,000 investment back in 2011 versus you know what happened in, in 2013 when we launched Mastermind Talks, if I would have added up speaker fees, if I would have added up missed revenue from admission prices and also from the, the two people joining the retreat program, I think it came out to like, I think it was like $215,000. I would have had to pay out of pocket for those things. And that was just a $10,000 investment. And those are relationships. So they just compound over time. So if I live into my 80s, that one event, those relationships that I fostered there will you know, be the ROI will be in the millions. Um, and that to me really just made me hungry to surround myself, you know, with great people and, and really take those opportunities very kind of seriously and jump at any opportunity I can. And I've done that ever since. All right. So you, you, you ran your scale down experiment. I'm sure Vern Harnish would have a heart attack, uh, hearing, I'm going to get, I'm going to write that book scaling down. Scaling down. Yeah, that, there's probably a lot of people that have successfully or maybe not, not intentionally, but successfully uh, executed that. Your personal life took a turn, but how, how, how did you move forward, pick it up? And how, what, what started the, what I guess, were the mastermind dinners at the time, right? Yeah, in that transition period, I didn't know what I was going to do next. And all I know is I had a lot of fear around whatever I was going to start next because my my previous business was seen as, quote unquote, successful by my peers, I guess you could say. And I had some kind of local media notoriety and all that kind of stuff. So there was a lot of pressure that whatever I launched next has to be successful. But uh, 
Yeah, and I didn't know what that, that was going to be, but a friend of mine uh, a few months later posted to Facebook that she had an extra ticket to go see Seth Godin in New York. And he was facilitating this little two-day workshop, and I had no clue what the workshop was about, but I'm like, I have no other obligations at the time. Um, all I have to pay for is like my flight and some cheap you know, hostel or something like that. So I could probably convince my wife that I, I can go and decided to take her up on the opportunity. It turned out that the theme of the workshop was the connection economy and how there's huge value connecting like-minded individuals. And uh, I remember shortly after the workshop, uh, I'm like, I'm going to start facilitating. I was going to, I was just almost said dinners, but like, really, I was just planning to do one dinner. I just felt very socially isolated and uh, lonely, I guess you could say at the time. So I wanted to um, bring together eight entrepreneurs and just be in their proximity. And the truth be told, the first dinner I did, I almost canceled two hours prior because I'm like, nobody's going to see value in this. They're going to think I completely wasted their time. <laughs> but thankfully, it turned out to be a big success. And the common misconception is that I had some kind of network to begin with, which actually isn't true at all. I mean, when I, I got married again in September of 2012, I had two people show up to my bachelor party. I had my brother and my brother-in-law. I knew nobody. All the amazing relationships that I've cultivated over the years have been in the last four or five years specifically. Um, and that one dinner, I always say um, resources aren't the problem. It's, it's resourcefulness. And even though I didn't start with um, with an existing kind of network, I, I there's a, a magazine called Profit Magazine, which is very similar to Inc., where they have this like Inc. 500 list. Yeah. So they have a Profit 500 list, which gives you like a list of all these like top entrepreneurs and top businesses locally. And I just reached out to people cold for that first dinner. And I was lucky if I got a 5% response rate, but that kind of fostered the first eight people for that dinner. What was the hook? I mean, people get a lot of these emails, right? They get a lot of, hey, I want to come to sure. something. What? How did you think it would add value again for people who think about events and, and what what was the message that even got people there? Yeah, good question. Um, it, it wasn't about me. It's as simple as that. I didn't reach out and say, hey, I'm doing a dinner and I didn't make the dinner about me at all. What I did specifically is I said, hey, I'm doing a dinner for other Profit Magazine alumni on this date. Uh, if you're interested, kind of let me know. So I made it about connecting them. And then I just kind of shoehorned myself <laughs> into the equation. And it worked famously. It worked beautifully. So I didn't make the dinner about me. Uh, and I didn't charge for the dinner either. You know, I paid for that first one out of pocket. You know, subsequently, I've paid for almost every dinner I've done since then. And I've done hundreds. And people back then thought it was crazy that I was paying for these dinners at the time. But to me, the way I rationalized it was that the bank could take my car, they could take whatever measly assets I had left, but they couldn't take my relationships. Investing my relationships to me were the safest investment I could make because I was pretty sure I was going to declare bankruptcy. I was as close to rock bottom as you can imagine uh, financially. So yeah, I just kind of continued on with those, those dinners over time. And then that turned into MMT. All right. So then take us through what, what was the first iteration of, of MMT, which was dinner series, right? Yeah. It, so, it, well, first uh, it was these dinners. And then what happened was, and again, I'm running out of cash. I don't know how I'm going to make rent, but I'm like investing in relationships are the safest investment I can make. But you're buying everyone dinner. So that was nice of you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I, I was going out in, in, in flames. That's for sure. <laughs> I was going out with a bang. Um, but the, 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 as luck would have it, thankfully, I started doing these dinners in October. In mid-November, and this is bringing Tim Ferriss back into the equation, he was coming out with a book called The 4-Hour Chef. 
And uh, some people may remember this, but he had two books prior to that. He had The 4-Hour Workweek, which was a huge success. It sat on the New York Times bestseller list for five years. Then he had The 4-Hour Body, which was also, I think, a number one New York Times bestselling book. Yeah. And obviously, the expectation is that you know his third book is going to be a New York Times bestseller. Well, unfortunately, three weeks before the book came out, uh, it turned out he was going to be banned from all retail distribution. Uh, so that includes Barnes & Noble, Walmart. Uh, Costco, everybody. And the reason for that is he was the first big name author to publish through Amazon. And the traditional kind of publishing world almost wanted to make an example out of him. So he is probably by far one of the best book marketers I know. And he created these book bundle packages to kind of offset that, where if you bought five books, he'd give you additional resources. If you bought 50 books, let's say maybe he'd do a webinar with you. He had this Hail Mary package that if you bought 4,000 books, he'd do two speaking engagements. And I was one of the first people to see this offer. He, he posted about it on his blog. And as soon as I saw it, I said, you know what? This is a great opportunity for a friend of mine who does these big events in Canada because he does like 10 events a year, a couple thousand people for events per event. And I emailed him. And the minute I click send on this email, I said, you know what? It's a great opportunity for anyone because Tim doesn't speak all that often. And he's never spoken in Canada up until that point. So um, I ended up emailing him directly. And I said, you know what, I'll take the package. And he said, awesome. I'll loop back with you by the end of the day and tell you what the next steps are. And basically, when he got back to me, he said, uh, cool, uh, well, we'll need you to wire the $84,000 uh, in the next 72 hours. And I said, amazing. Um, I have no money. So I didn't tell him that specifically, but uh, I knew I had to scramble. And all my other businesses I built up until that point in time were just off credit cards. Um, I always just kind of reinvested profits and built the businesses and that kind of stuff. And that worked well, uh, especially because I had almost like this limiting belief around asking for things. Um, I'm historically somebody who has a really hard time at it. Um, and I was just raised that way. So uh, my back was against the wall, though, in this sense, and I had to come up with those $84,000. So I reached out to three friends of mine at the time that morning, basically. The first one I called said, you know what sounds great? Um, loop back with some numbers. And in my head, I'm like, I don't know how this industry works. Uh, plus, I'm not a numbers thinker as an entrepreneur anyways. So I'm like, oh, well, hopefully this will work out. But I have two more people to call. Uh, second person I called said, sounds great. Let's start a business 50-50. And I said, that sounds awesome. I have one more person to call. And the third person I called, I got probably halfway through my pitch. And he said, you know what, pick up a check tomorrow morning at my office. I didn't go on any further. I hung up that phone, so he didn't change his mind. And the following morning, I think I was supposed to show up at like 8 a.m. I probably showed up at like 6.30 because I was afraid he was going to like call me and say, you know, it deals off. And I'd be like, I'm already outside. You know what I mean? So I got that check. Uh, I deposited the money. I, I sent the, I wired the money to Tim right away. And I went from basically $250,000 in debt to $334,000 in debt, uh, just like that. And uh just really saw it as an opportunity for me to do what I do in the dinners, um, but on a larger scale. And I just planned to do the one event. Um, for me, it was a purely a social capital play. The idea was that you know if I could put 100 amazing entrepreneurs in a room, then I just added 100 amazing entrepreneurs to my network. And um, yeah, leading up to it was an interesting time. Thankfully, you know there was things that just fell into place. We had 4,200 entrepreneurs apply for the event. That was capped wow. at 150 people. We got, as made mention you know, about the speakers before that I met at that event two years prior at Tim's event, I got five of them to speak. I had 15 speakers total. Um, I couldn't pay speaker fees. 
because I was broke. Uh, so what I did instead was I created, I stole a, a page out of the XPRIZE model that if you, um, or the, the way they do it is I basically created a, a prize for the best talk is voted by the audience. So instead of sp- paying speaker fees, I did this prize, a $25,000 prize. Uh, and it actually worked out famously because we had Tim speak. Um, and as, how, as far as how I got the initial speakers to speak, I either reached out to people Tim already knew that they were friends, but they were never at the same place at the same time. So I could use the event as a catalyst to kind of reconnect him and all of his friends. Or I reached out to people who I knew wanted to be connected to Tim to speak for free. And that's how we initially got those 15 speakers. And uh, it was very much trying, we were trying to be almost like the TED Talks of entrepreneurship. And it was a two-day event. We had 15 speakers compete on day one. The rest of the event was kind of Q&As and that kind of stuff. The funny thing happened um, at the end of the event was that we had 15 speakers. When we decided to do a second event, 10 of those speakers came back as paid attendees. And a lot of them, actually, oddly enough, are still part of MMT um, to this day. So we've evolved significantly from you know, a content-driven event to much more of a peer-to-peer driven community. Um, and that's been an evolution over the last six years that we've leaned to more and more. But, you know, I look back and I smile because, you know, I always say ignorance, confidence and hard work could go a long way. I had no clue what I was doing by any stretch. And because of that, the, the execution of the event was probably closer to a wedding. Uh, than it was a conference in the sense of like the assigned seating and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, those unconventional things kind of really attributed a lot to our success over the years. So we just leaned into it even more. But you also, it sounds like early on fell into this, people want to get into the club they can't get into, right? I, I A lot of times I get these emails from the conferences and, uh, oh, just one spot left, one spot left, one spot left. You've had, yeah. uh, I, I, you know, you are, I know you're intense on curation, but I mean, tell the stats for everyone in terms of the number of applications you've had versus the number of people that have, have made it into an MMT event overall. Yeah, so um, it's just a high-level view of, of kind of certain numbers. So, um, yeah, since our inception in 2013, we've had just probably over 18,000 entrepreneurs apply at this point for Mastermind Talks, which is capped at 150 people annually. That doesn't include the about three to 400 nominations that we get every year. And, you know, 18,000 is a big, sexy number to throw around, but finding great people is like a needle in a haystack. Um, So for us, we haven't really relied on applications or leaned on applications at all for the last three years. Uh, I'm a firm believer that amazing people know other amazing people. So we always kind of invest as much energy as possible into like the quote unquote customer experience or the attendee experience. Um, And that really fuels kind of word of mouth. And if somebody comes through you and you say, Hey, this is somebody you need to have on your radar. um, Historically, our acceptance rate on uh, nominations is 92% Mm. versus applications uh, where our acceptance rate is 0.4% historically. So um, yeah, that's a high level, I guess, overview, but the event itself, um, we get about 80 to 85 um, alumni that attempt to renew every year. We only allow half back. Um, and you did make mention about like the, I guess, the Cool Kids Club. I, I didn't plan it to be that way uh, necessarily. I mean, there's a few things that worked out in our favor. One was like the price point. Initially, Mastermind Talks, when I reached out to friends of mine in the event space, because I had no clue, again, the industry or what I was doing, I said, how much can I charge for an event like this? And back then, I had Tim Ferriss and a few other speakers lined up, and they said, well, at most, you can get 1000 bucks." So I said, all right, we'll charge 1000 bucks." <laughs> well, when all these applications started rolling in, I was selling people at 1000 bucks. How it worked is that when somebody would apply, 
and it wasn't a scalable model in hindsight, but because we weren't expecting that many applications. Basically, somebody would apply, I'd review their application. If I thought they were a fit, I'd send them an invitation. Uh, if they secured that spot, then I'd do a phone call with them to assess if they were actually the right fit. And really, the the key to that um, that phone call ultimately was I've been a part of other groups out there where their their curation process is based purely on a revenue figure. Yeah, um, and it works when you want to like just have a system and 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 curate at scale. Um, but for me, in my last business, I didn't enjoy the business. I was so jaded by it. Like I didn't like the people that we served either. Like I started to sabotage money-making opportunities because I didn't want to answer the phone. <laughs> Somebody would be like on the phone with a credit card and I'm like, I don't even want to take the call. Um, so I didn't want that to happen with this business. So I actually only wanted to serve people that I cared about uh, and that I wanted to be around. So when I got on these these calls to assess if they were the right fit, I'd ask some some kind of softball questions like, you know, what's the most enticing aspect of the event that makes you want to sign up? And if they say, oh, it's to meet Tim Ferriss or Mark Echo or whoever, I'd refund their money because it's a non-soliciting uh, event. But ultimately, at the end of every phone call, I'd ask myself, I'd do a gut check. I'd ask myself, would I want to have dinner with this person? And if the answer is no, I didn't care how successful they were on paper. I wouldn't have them at MMT. So that was like the core kind of curation process out of the gate. Um, that's how we built it. And what I've come to learn over the years is how you run a community of 150 people is exactly how you'd run a company of the same size. The importance of culture and curation and core values, shared values um, are equally important in this industry. And that's something that uh, yeah, most people don't focus on. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. I'm curious, was Napoleon Hill ever an influence or had you read his, had Think and Grow Rich and his sort of version of or concept of the mastermind? So I've read, I think, three books from beginning to end in my lifetime. I own thousands of books. So if you came to my house, you'd be like, wow, you're so well read. Um, <laughs> you're like, I just have a good library. Exactly. Yeah. I just love visually like looking at books. Um, so I have had that book for years. I have multiple copies of that book. I have never read it. Uh, and people still refer to it as one of the greatest books of all time, um, but I've yet to read it. Um, but I am familiar that there is some kind of concept of masterminds, or he, he really popularized the whole concept of masterminds in the book. Um, yeah. So I probably should go back to the source and see what he wrote. So that's a, a friendly reminder next time I'm on a plane to grab a copy of his book. Yeah. And, and I, I think, you know, having been at the event the last year, I really appreciate, you know, the work you put into curation, which seems like it's a, it's a three, 
maybe a two-part process, right? It's curating up front and then ongoing curation. I think I, I've been invited yeah. to some events. There's two problems I've seen in other organizations I've been in. I think your approach is different. So I'd, I'll make a comment. I'd love to hear you give color to it. But one is, sure. you know, you're, you're promised this exclusive group, right? And I can think of an event I went to two years ago and they made a big deal about it and the type of level of people. And I went there and then there were just some people that, didn't meet the stated criteria and seemed to, I, I don't know how they walked in or got in. They said, they said X, but then sold tickets to to anyone, right? What sort of sure. lowered that that expectation. And the other is assuming that once you've been or go, that you are in. And I think a lot of organizations struggle to <laughs> exit people like company, like you said, like a company, right? Hey, we thought you had the core values, but you haven't, haven't demonstrated them. Um, so can you just talk a little bit about maybe both those concepts and how you approach them? Yeah. So, um, I mean, for us, that's the only competitive advantage we have in the marketplace is the quality of our, our community. So when you have success in this industry, the common strategy to scale is more events or bigger events. Right. And that's something I knew that we didn't want to do. So instead of scaling in size every year, we scale by raising the caliber of people in attendance. And anybody who's been... Uh, and I'm pretty confident in this. Anybody who's been part of Mastermind Talks for several years can generally confidently say that the quality of people has gotten significantly better uh, over the years. I mean, I'm looking, I was looking at photos of year two recently. So this is going four years back. And I'm actually amazed how many of those people I haven't had back and how much the community has evolved in the last you know six years total. So um, you know, a lot of people are not willing to do that level of curation, but I know that's that's really what makes MMT unique. Because I can't, we can't compete with TED. You know, TED talks when it comes to their speakers, we can't compete with their, you know, the not only the quality of the speakers necessarily, but also like their their AV and their stage setup and the environment. And I mean, they have unlimited resources, but the only right. thing we can compete with is is that level of curation. So to us, it's been crucial. And yeah, I kind of laughed when you said like, you know, a lot of people create that scarcity of like oh one day left and our cart oh, our cart was broken now it's reopened and i'm like oh my god you know what i mean like people see through it oftentimes um and if anything like we have a bad reputation in the marketplace in the sense that like people think we hate them if we can't have them at mastermind like the next mastermind talks but they don't know that we have like a th and i've articulated that we have like a three-year wait list um like you have to go there's hundreds of people ahead of you so yeah we're, we're trying to figure out that model but that's that's been it as far as we're always trying to raise the caliber of people in attendance. And I don't know if it was like Jack Welsh and like his GE philosophy of like, I don't know, did he do something like knocking down the lot, like 20% of the, the workforce every year or something like that? Force ranking. Yeah. 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 So, um, I, yeah, maybe I got it from there, but that was kind of our, our philosophy early on was that we would only allow a third of the people to come back every year and the cream would always kind of rise to the top. And then, uh, after a couple of years, I, you know, as we started leaning more and more to this whole notion of community, I'm like, well, how much of community is it if we're knocking out like two thirds every year? So we're probably being a little too aggressive, but we've also gone through so many iterations that, you know, you have, you do a third and then you do half and all that kind of stuff. Um, you have a really solid group of people, but I think it's important to have a mix of both our proper mix, like our mix currently that has worked really well for us is 50, 50. So 50% of the people are allowed to come back. 50% of the people are new. And the reason that mix has worked really well is that, um, the alumni, I guess you could say, bring a certain culture to the event. Um, and they almost set the tone. And then the new people just infuse just this 
new energy to it. So, you know, a lot of people that come to our event, uh, you know, they've been to maybe TED once or twice, and they've been to other events once or twice. Um, but they're, you know, coming to MMT for the sixth, seventh year. And I think that longevity is, is really because it's a mix of people that, you know, you're going to have existing relationships that you'll be able to nurture uh, in that three-day environment, but you also have the opportunity to connect with fascinating people you wouldn't be able to connect with otherwise. So that's, that's the mix that's worked really well for us. So, I mean, you're making, you're making tough decisions, and I think there's some good leadership lessons here for people who have a really hard time, you know, with, with making small amounts of cuts and underperformers on the team. So, I'm curious, what's the, what's the gut instinct for you when you know someone is, is, is not going to work out? Like, what are the, you've done this for a few years now, what, what are the tip-offs that uh, this isn't going to be the right type of person for our community that happened early? Well, it's funny. I'm I'm in the hiring process right now of uh, a new operations person, and I was I was thinking about recently that there's I've I've heard about a saying once that like if you don't like firing people, get better at hiring. Um, <laughs> and for me, like you know, we have a pretty stringent um, application process in the sense of like again, you generally have to be nominated through somebody that we trust. Um, ideally, you come out to an, uh, like a, a dinner or that kind of stuff, so we get to know you a little bit um, and that kind of stuff, and also. You know, if I'm considering somebody for Mastermind Talks, I sign up for their email list, I listen to their podcasts, all those kind of things. Like to what you said, just about the people who create like, you know, fake scarcity. Um, I don't want those people um, yeah. in my my community or in my life, really. Um, you know, I want people who are authentic and transparent and, you know, have an abundance mindset and, and all that kind of stuff. So we, we have certain kind of systems and processes that we put people through initially so and we're trying to get better at that. Like the new rule that I'm implementing is I have to meet people face to face before they're accepted into MMT. And that's going to be difficult because we have people that apply from all over the world that get nominated from all over the world. But in full transparency, just at this last event, there was two or three people that I met. And within the first 10 seconds, I realized they weren't the right fit. And I had a phone call with them and they were great on the phone call and all that kind of stuff. So we're always trying to improve our systems so that um, we just have better quality people right in the door, um, which will alleviate us, again, having to have these difficult conversations and, and removing people, so to speak. It's interesting you say that. I mean, we do a lot of, we're, we're distributed, we do a lot of interviewing remote, but we've really, over the years, determined that that last round has to be in, in person. Now, you probably haven't finished the book, Blink, but I know, you know you're familiar with the concept. <laughs> but what, what, what is the visceral? So, so you, you talk to someone on the phone, you were on video with them. Like what actually, if you know in two seconds, if you may able to put your finger on, is it just their, is it their energy? Like what, what is it that that in-person thing you could find out in five seconds that you couldn't? Because I think this is critical for companies that are doing a lot of remote interviewing and are worried about, about fit. Yeah, I mean, there's just an there's an energy there, and it's hard to put your finger on it. Um, like I've met so many people over the years, and you have a pretty good radar as far as you know if somebody is being their authentic self or not. Um, you know, the truth of the matter is though, it works ninety five to ninety eight percent of the time, but sometimes I'm wrong, and I have to be fine with that. There's certain people that I've kind of judged. I mean, this this role has made me very judgmental of people right <laughs> out of the gate. Like I am just very judgmental when I meet people um, because I have to be almost by nature um, for the role. But uh, there's some people that I'm like, you know what, I'm not having them back, but I've kept them around for a little bit, and they've grown on me. And you also have to be conscious that, like, you know, we're all in new social environments like you people are anxious yeah. and all that kind of stuff and that, and that may show up them being on their own at a lunch or that may show up them on their phone or those kind of things 
So you have to be conscious of that as well. But there's something I, I can't necessarily put my finger on that you just you can meet somebody and generally have a really good feel for who they are as a person. So yeah, but the, to me, I, and nothing is I don't I, no other process is better. Like we use a lot of different things that, to kind of get them along the the process and filter them down. But meeting them face to face, I remember once a friend of mine, Shaw Wasman, had a philosophy that she would never hire somebody on her executive team if she wouldn't have them at her house for a weekend. And that was yeah. actually her kind of test um, that she had to have you know this person stay with the, the her family for the weekend. And I remember I was going to start a business with a, a guy. Actually, no, he was going to invest. Oddly enough, in mastermind talks, that was the only time I was considering taking capital. And um, we went on a, a like a three day vacation, I guess you could say, to the Bahamas because I had property down there. And uh, within the first, I don't know, two thirds of the day, I wanted to kill him. Um, so I'm like, this is a really good like approach. Um, so that's kind of the way I I see things. Uh, yeah, that's that's harder to get out of. That's a long uh, that's a long yeah. first date. So you know, you alluded to this before, <laughs> but a lot of conferences start. They're great. Then they start the spinoff and the other spinoff, and they dilute the brand sure. and put them in, put the main thing at jeopardy. What is your future plan for Mastermind Talks and the community? Yeah, it's um, it's funny because my own personal goals overlap with MMT. I love just surrounding myself with fascinating people who are doing fascinating things, who are giving and you know philanthropic and just amazing people um thankfully i'm able to use mmt as that vehicle but the truth of the matter is again we're starting to level off not level off but i mean there's always more amazing people out there so to speak and i have the whole um jim collins like seats on the bus mentality that you want the right yeah. people uh, on the bus and the right people in the right seats and the wrong people off the bus so to speak so i'm always going to be shuffling people around and adding new people and removing people. But really, I want to build like the greatest community of entrepreneurs in the world. And that's not necessarily an ego thing. That's just my own personal, I just love surrounding myself with amazing people. And thankfully, again, our community is starting to show how amazing it is. Um, and we're just going to continue to lean into that. And it's, you know, the whole notion of scale. It's funny, like I have no desire to scale as far as the size of the group, price point, any of that kind of stuff at this point in time, really the whole notion of scale is really scale the impact uh, on the people in the community and, um, you know, scale like the, the amount of uh, interactions they have amongst themselves, uh, you know, throughout the year and um, the uh, cohesion of those relationships and have them out at more of our one-off events like, you know, the Disney cruise that we're doing next month or the couples weekend, the spa weekend that we did last weekend. So um, like that's where my energy is, is more focused on quality uh, and focused on like really scaling the impact of, of the community more so than just scaling for, for business sake. All right. Well, you're in a great position, I think, to answer my last question, which I love to ask. And, and that's kind of what, what have we learned from failure? So in this case, I'd ask you, what's a networking mistake you've made that you've learned the most from? Oh, God. <laughs> um, that's a toughie. Uh, I mean, there's a few things. I think being true to my, like under, having a good understanding of my own kind of personal, quote unquote, networking style uh, or you know social dynamic style i guess you could say is probably the overarching theme of it uh, i'm not the type of guy to walk into a room and be the center of attention and get every and go like you know a millimeter deep with a thousand different people 
it's just not my style. I, I definitely um, lean more towards being like an introvert slash ambivert. Um, so understanding that I have a natural style and then playing within that and realizing that there are strengths with that style. So yes, I'm not the type of guy to walk into a room and be the center of attention, but I am the type of guy to walk into a room go deep with a few individuals, watch that room really well and see like the, the dynamics of other people interacting. Um, and then using that event as a springboard to follow up after the event by email or doing a video email or whatever the case may be. Um, and then just going deep with individual relationships from that. So I think that's probably the overarching theme of like the mistake I've made in the past is like thinking like I have to be the big you know, boisterous guy walking into the room um, when it's just not my natural style. And there's actually plenty of benefits just leaning into your own style and figuring out what that is. Great answer. And uh, yeah, I think we all need to figure out what, as you said, you, you've learned you're mastering getting smaller uh, in a lot of things where most people are, are getting bigger, but knowing, knowing that that's what you want is important. So Jason, where can people learn more about you and or mastermind talks if they're interested in, in applying or, or it sounds like better, better way to be <laughs> get, get referred from someone who's uh, who's already been, who's already a member of the community. You got to be friends with Bobby. That's that's your way in. Um, yeah, so mmt.community is uh, the website for Mastermind Talks. Again, feel free to uh, apply, but um, if you know Bobby, that definitely increases your chances. Uh, I have a podcast called Community Made, uh, which season one is all about scale. Season two is all about uh, actually relationships and networking at events and uh, investing in relationships and all that kind of stuff. And then all the standard social channels uh, you can think of, Facebook, LinkedIn, not much on Twitter, but Instagram I'm starting to lean into now. So that's Jason, J-A-Y-S-O-N-G-A-I-G-N-A-R-D. All right, Jason, it's been a delight to talk with you. I know I thoroughly enjoyed the MMT event I attended last year and was honored to get the opportunity to join, particularly as I've learned about <laughs> how hard it is to get in. You're definitely doing what you set out to do and creating a strong community of impressive people who can learn from each other and also grow together. So thanks for taking the time to share your journey and your experiences with us today. Awesome, dude. I appreciate you having me on. And it's, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm super just grateful to have you in the community. It's an honor to host you. And uh, trust me, next year will be even better. Uh, I'll hold you to that. Well, we'll be sure to include <laughs> more information about Jason and his Mastermind Talks event, and including the links that he just mentioned on the episode page, as well as a link to his book, Mastermind Dinners. Until next time, keep elevating. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, 
and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.